This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you. I think I'm last before our keynote speaker. Can you all hear me okay? Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, I am very uh, grateful that I got set up to tell you about the name of my company. My name of my company is Karma, uh, the Karma Agency, and our, um, our uh, theme of our company is Consequential Ideas and Actions. Is something okay? thinking um, <laughs> that's very funny I have no idea okay um, so I am not a scholar and I but I am a, a practitioner and uh, what, I, what you'll see from today will show that you that I'm not a scholar but I'm hoping that I might inspire some scholarship from this conversation and uh, it comes from being on the front lines of business and uh, dealing with really very real communications issues I'm going to share a story that's actually based in something that is going on right as, as we speak. Um, it's a project that I'm currently involved in. It's been going on for a few years now, um, and it, it's getting more and more complex. So with that, I'm going to start, and I'm just going to set a little context, just a little context. It's kind of a big, wide, complicated story. I'm going to try and make it as simple as I can, and then get it to a place where maybe we can have a little conversation. So the world needs good food, and this is a really important concept, right? We know who would argue with this idea. Um, food is the largest industry in the world, and it is a five trillion dollar industry, and it is an extremely political industry and extremely polarizing. As big as the food industry is, the food information business is growing by leaps and bounds every single day. And in a world where anyone can declare themselves a subject matter expert, publish, earn authority. Uh, scientific journals and science reporting must uphold the highest standards of publishing and journalism. So here's the problem. The problem is perception is, there, is reference dependent. Science journalism, journalism is declining. Science journals are faring, failing to uphold standards for peer review research. Celebrity is more powerful than science. Food issues are, fra are framed to organize ideas, establish authority, create relevance, and deflect bias. In 1989, there were 95 weekly science sections in newspapers. By 2005, that number dropped to 34. In, two in 2012, there were 19. Last year, CNN fired its entire science team. Blogs are filling the science journalism void. This is called Retraction Watch. Just, just this year, 30-plus papers were flagged because the editors may have subverted the peer review process. So if you don't know what journal, uh, peer review journalists are, all the doctors will know this year, the PhDs. But as students, research papers, scientific work, it's very important to have them submitted to journals and have those journals peer reviewed. And if you publish, it is very valuable and it's important. Your work is considered very important then. And so, this process has been a part of academia forever, and it's been something that's been very important to journalism because much of what goes into mainstream media comes from scientific um, papers and research. 
So it first gets published in a journal and then goes to what I would call opinion elite, like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and then from there it goes into mainstream media. So this is a problem. The food babe, Bonnie Hari, many of you know her, has declared herself a subject matter expert on food science, but she is a technologist. She is not a scientist. Yesterday, Google results, there were 451 million science blogs, 378 million food blogs, 36,400,000 organics food blogs. That was from yesterday. All these organizations and many, many, many more are paying attention to food and science. Every single day you are hearing something about food and science. You're hearing about GMOs. You're hearing about all kinds of things in our diet every single day. And that information is coming from many places. So I'm going to tell you a story about one ingredient and kind of a very interesting, almost ironic story. This ingredient is called carrageenan. It is produced by many uh, global chemical companies um, that believe that they are truly social responsible. DuPont, FMC, Cargill, uh, CTS in China, others. This product is very simply seaweed. It is grown in seaweed farms all over the world, mostly in warm winter waters in places like Indonesia, Thailand, um, a whole range of countries. China has a big carrageenan industry. It is nothing more than seaweed. It is taken and it's been used in, in uh, food for nearly um, a thousand years. It comes, the name comes from a mountain in Ireland where they harvested seaweed and they used the carrageenan, which they took out of it, um, out of the seaweed, to thicken pudding, pudding. And what it actually is, is a emulsifier thickener and it suspends uh, nutrients in food. So when you get yogurt, why the yogurt doesn't fall apart is because of carrageenan. Um, so anyway, this food ingredient is kind of really interesting. It's in thousands and thousands of products and very important to shelf stabilization and nutrition, uh, nutrition suspension. So it is produced by seaweed farmers in these small towns all over the Philippines, Indonesia, and other places, as I mentioned. These are very small aquaculture uh, farmers. They sell their product to the big companies that process it, and the processing is very, very simple. 90% of this is coming from uh, floating farms away from coral reefs um, and other places. And it's really an interesting product because it is completely sustainable and uh, we're relying on aquaculture to help build an econo economies. And the, the actual wage of the people that are seaweed farmer, uh, farmers is much higher than the average person uh, where they're living. They're able to educate their children, provide reasonable livelihoods. And you can see it's just a big industry in lots of places like in Cebu um, in the Philippines. So this is how it's processed. And this is straight up from toxicology. This is not you know, any kind of uh, corporate speak. They take the, the uh, seaweed. They basically put it with an alkaline. Uh, it's a lye. They process it very simply. It gets filtered just like coffee gets filtered. It gets dried out. It gets chopped up and milled and turns into powder. And it looks like pallets of cocaine, frankly, when it's um, <laughs> shipped. Um, you can see this is not on coral reefs or anything. They're just out floating. And they, they, use, they use bottles. They use water bottles that they recycle to make the floating. 
So here's, here's the challenge. This product has been under fire now for several years. And it's been under fire by a group called the Cornucopia Institute. And they say of themselves that they are there for protecting the economic justice of organic farmers. It's an organization based in Wisconsin. And believe it or not, this small organization has been able to influence people all over the country and the world that carrageenan is not safe. Now, they are actually a trade association for organics farmers. They, are not, they have as much special interest in this as anybody else. And what is kind of interesting is they're trying to protect the special interest of small organics farmers in basically the United States, People, Vermont, Wisconsin, those types of places where organics farming. And organic farming is really important. It's a wonderful thing. And eating organic is really a fantastic thing. But we cannot sustain the world on organic food at this time. So their, their mission is not any different than the missions of all of these people living in other places in the world. But their myopic view is just of the United States. They really only care about what's going on in the United States. So what they've done is they have worked very, very hard to find um, a single scientist who would produce papers scientific research papers that would try and say that this product is unhealthy. And so she has done this. She has funding from uh, NIH. She has funding from uh, the Veterans Administration, other universities. And she's producing papers, four of them so far. In each of these papers, she has um, come up with some different varying results suggesting that carrageenan can cause things like irritable bowel syndrome and things like that. And they are fighting very hard to get this product removed from all kinds of products in the United States. But what the truth of the matter is, she is the only scientist with a huge body of work from signed independent scientists around the world and also sanctioned by JECFA in Europe and the FDA and many other regulatory bodies that this product is safe. But she has used, they have successfully used social media to convince others that this product is not safe and people are buying into it to the point where this ingredient is in things like almond milk and f manufacturers of almond milk are reformulating, not because they believe it's unsafe, but because consumers believe it is unsafe. So here's a press release from just um, September when the FAO WO joint, the JECFA committee released its study on carrageenan saying it's actually so safe it's even good for infant formula. Now, here's the rub. This letter came to Dr. Tabachman, and it also went to the independent toxicologist that tried to replicate her study. They're using good rep, uh, laboratory practices. And they could not replicate her study. When the letter came, what it told them is, and also she got the exact same information, that the cell lines that they had purchased to conduct these research studies were bad cell lines. They were, they were mucosal cell lines because they were, in testing, they were testing to replicate what goes on in your stomach lining. And these mucosal cell lines were really uh, damaged, and there were many things that were wrong with them. So two independent toxicologists reviewed this information, went back to their own studies around um, carrageenan, they then wrote to the seven science journals that published Dr. Tabachman's work, provided a copy of this letter from Incel, and all seven of those science journals rejected retraction. 
So here we are in this situation where we know that the study is bad, the science journals don't want to do anything about it, and the public is continuing to believe something about an ingredient that's false. So here's a few things I'd like to consider and what I'm really concerned about in the integrity of science and journalism. So we have to agree that science is important to meeting global food supply. There's no way we're going to meet global food supply with 7 billion people without science. It has to be safe science. It has to be sound science. It has to be good products that is healthy and good for us, but we need science. The consequences of junk science, this one scientist, this one rogue scientist has been able to actually influence all these people, is affecting consumer beliefs and behaviors, which is now changing what organizations like the people that are producing almond milk are uh, putting into, their, they're actually reformulating. That's going to have a huge effect all the way back on those seaweed farmers in Indonesia. It's, it's a major part of their economy there. So those people are going to really be suffering from this. It's going to affect policy decisions because regulators are one thing, but the legislators who influence the regulators are going to have this impact of wanting to do what their constituents want them to do. So it's going to affect policy decisions. This economic and social justice, well, this small organization, Cornucopia Institute, is worried ab worrying about their economic justice when, in fact, economic justice is not, does not, is not parochial. It is a much bigger, larger story. All of this is fueling the polarization of food in the economy, which is not helping anyone. Um, Industry-funded science is not inherently corrupt. So this goes to your point about corporate social responsibility. Most people are not Mr. Burns in a factory doing corrupt things, making products to, to poison all of us. Industry is producing positive things every single day. And without industry-funded science, most of what we have today that are really important scientific developments would not be here. Think of Kevlar and protective vests at DuPont. That was industry-funded science. And so we have to get off this idea that all industry-funded science is corrupt. It's not. We have to be thoughtful about it. We have to be aware and we have to have knowledgeable reporting. Um, Fear-mongering is a huge opportunity in media. Media enjoys fear-mongering because it gets them readers. And so they're able to use that. U.S. organic trade associations are blind to the global impact of cause. I really just sort of talked about it. Uh, social media content has eclipsed rational dialogue often. And this is why these science blogs are a challenge because people are writing science blogs that aren't qualified to write these science blogs. So what my theory here is that media needs to restore knowledge-based science journalism. People that really understand how to report and write about science with un and understand science so that they can engage in the proper questions around scientific studies and not just accept on blind faith what a, a, a scientist reports to them. Um, another really important point I think here is that um, balance is not the objective in science reporting. Because a balanced story says there's two points of view. But science isn't about two points of view. Science is about looking at information and understanding what the answers are, right? So th this idea of balanced journalism in science is a false understanding. So my final thought here, and then I maybe can take a couple questions. Um, in communications, claiming to be this on the side of the angels is not a pass to uh, on acting responsibility or speaking responsibly. 
And my suggestion here is this Cornucopia Institute has put itself in this place with this one scientist, and um, they are failing to act responsibly. That, that scientist herself had that same letter that the other scientist, she should have raised her hand, she should have gone to those journals, and she should have said, I need to redo these studies, and, I, and she didn't do it. And so, because she is, be, she is being funded by organics trade organizations. So organics sounds like the sort of side of the angels, right? Because organic is supposed to be so healthy. But in fact, we have to get behind this information to really understand what is right. And that's why high integrity in scientific journalism is going to become increasingly important. And we have to start to argue to have it back in our, in our coverage. So that's all I have. <laughs> Turn this off.
So economics, finance, technology, all of those subjects have skilled journalists who understand those subjects, reporting on those. But science has very few. There are still some very good ones at the New York Times or some at the Wall Street Journal or some at some of the publications like Time Magazine. But the, there is not an appetite among citizens to read science and to understand it. And they just default to whatever um, whatever the common sort of trend is and or information that's going on around there. And so, what I think is that educated people need to demand science reporting. And <coughs> I, because if we don't, we're just going to keep it's just going to keep getting winnowed down more and more, and it's just going to appear on blogs. And the problem with blogs are two things. I think they're great, and I blog myself. But the problem with blogs for me is that you don't know the qualifications of the people that are writing those blogs. And it's just, it could just be mere opinion based on absolutely nothing. And the second thing is, it's not presented in mainstream media. You have to look for that. You have to be interested in the subject, and you have to go, and you have to find it. <coughs> and so the opportunity to really understand something that's really important to, in science, global warming, any kind of thing like that, that is not being properly reported on, is really hurting us as a society. And so I think that's really an important thing. We have to, as citizens, start to demand better science journalism. Rosa. Okay. So there is this sort of anti-intellectualism movement, right? And social media is not helping us. Although it's fun and it's great, it's not helping us. And so I think that all of you, you're here, you're students, you're smart, you're learning. Most of you that are probably here are in liberal arts. The, the value of that education has to be important enough for you to talk about it. Important enough for it to become part of the dialogue, not that you're bragging about your education, but being interested in subjects that are intellectually cour courageous and talking about things that matter. And so I think that's part of what will help people realize what the, there is an appetite for. So it's interesting. So Dr. Weil is one of the doctors that actually is an anti-Karaginan doctor and writes in pre for uh, Prevention Magazine about it and other places, he, anything related to Rodell Press. But, um, and Dr. Oz, you know, he's now on his cathartic season. He's going to tell the truth and he's going to start telling people that he's really 
going to be science oriented and he's just going to reveal things. So we're actually toying with the idea of bringing this as a, a, having a panel on Dr. Oz and seeing how legitimate he is about talking about this from a scientific perspective. So. Chenchu 研究上能够比全球比如往前跨一步那然后呢为我们去全球文明是它除了全球城市那些功能以外就我们特别还提到了包括地理的文明包括文化的融合就引入了这么一些内涵在研究当中也是基于现在也好未来也好这个大城市发展也存在那么大城市就各种各样的大城市那么我们也不是说如果全球城市往去中在对呃叫那个要素基本的这种全球影响力我觉得在其他城市不一定有广泛的影响力和这
<laughs> I love seaweed salad. <laughs> when you were saying that one scientist is doing this and um, you know it's um, contradictory to established wisdom in the field, I mean I understand that, but why hasn't that study been repeated? And second, when you say science is neutral, it's not really neutral unless you are looking at force in a chemical experiment, whether it explodes or not. When you have some interpretation involved, there is plenty of margin of error on how much you are willing to tolerate. Certainly in the case of food and organic industry mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. non-organic, there is plenty of, uh, you know, it's very error prone in terms of what the researcher himself or herself thinks about and who is funding. There are a lot of these nefarious uh, elements that get in. Um, so I'm not so sure whether to state an experiment as it is I agree with that. I agree that this one scientist will have to be replicated. Uh, right. You know, reliability is low. But, uh, you know, science in this field is not really that neutral. So, so no, it's not neutral. And ba there's a body of work going back to the 1970s that has been testing this. And it's been done by independent scientists, not necessarily these companies, because they have to pass these regulatory um, uh, programs. And the thing is that two of these companies have continued to test these materials all the way through this year. And each of these studies um, have continued to produce the similar results. And an independent Harvard study showed, again, that this product is, does not have any um, detrimental effects on the gut. And um, they even, in the most recent study, I mean, I'm, I'm going to bore you all, but it was a piglet study, and the piglet is most uh, common, their digestive system is most closely linked to a human digestive system at infancy, and it was about infant formula. So um, all this body of work is continuing to substantiate that this ingredient, because it is not actually digested, it's a soluble fiber, is, um, passes through your system and there's no harm to the human. This one scientist has just these sets of things. Several toxicologists have tried to replicate her studies, and these studies cannot be replicated. And so the fact that they've even invited her to co-conduct uh, co these studies with her, and she has refused to do that. So that part of the story makes you say, okay, why is she refusing? If she is really dedicated to knowing the answer to this, why is she, not, is she refusing to co-produce another study? Um, so, um, I don't know if I answered your so question. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it did. I think, can I just, so, uh, I was reading these reports that they
<coughs> for example, the drug companies, they have figured out how to increase the probability. I mean, I'm talking about the drug companies, mm -hmm. pharmaceuticals, because, uh, you know, they're the right. companies. So what they're doing is they're really using biased samples um, that not really going in and randomly, you know, putting together a group. They're very careful. And over the past 10 years, that has, that has increased the probability of FDA approval by um, 100 200%. I just read an article about that yesterday. Right. Yeah. So nobody is really asking the, the real question about who are the people you are testing this on? Right. Who are you experimenting Th these things on? And that's my very point about why we need sound science journalism. So it's not whether the company is right or the Organics Trade Association is right. It's whether we have enough science journalism to help the American public have the information they need to be able to make smart decisions. That's really what the point is. Right. Particular, uh, anyway. So we're we're closing this session. There will be.